Before we get into the show, here's a quick reminder from Resolve, a physician contract review company. At Resolve, they believe that knowledge is power for physicians and that power gives you control over your financial future. Resolve believes that mining, analyzing, and synthesizing data, they can provide you with information insight that empowers you to diagnose the health of your career, fully understand your worth, and maximize your full potential. As a company founded by a doctor for doctors, Resolve's focus is on the well-being of those whose purpose in life is to care for the well-being of others. To have this incredible company review your employment contract, find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash resolve. Again, drpodcastnetwork.com slash resolve. The link is also in the description of the show. So the it seems like the earliest iteration for the licensing board um, took place with a medical society in West Virginia. And it just surprised me that the beginning of regulation took place in West Virginia, which you describe as a seceded state from a seceded state. Talk about that for just a second. Yeah, well, as as many of your listeners will know, uh, West Virginia seceded from Virginia after Virginia seceded from the United States uh, during the Civil War. And the Lincoln administration recognized the secession group in West Virginia as a separate state, and they entered the Union during the war as the state of West Virginia. So in a sense, they are starting all over again at the end of the American Civil War. They have a rather, uh, I don't know, a a less plowed field than many other uh, groups. Uh, And so the physicians there saw an opportunity to reorganize themselves and the medical system. Uh, on a fresh basis without the heavy weight of the old Virginia Medical Association or all of the rivals of the old medical uh, association in Virginia. So this started as a medical society, correct? It wasn't a board of medicine at that point. It wasn't sanctioned by the state government. It was a collection of local doctors um, and just help, help our listeners understand was it a state-based society? Was it a community-based society that got the ball rolling on this? And, and what were they trying to accomplish? Well, the, the group that, uh, that, that becomes the focal point of the, or of, of the drive for, for uh, licensing in West Virginia is, is a statewide medical society organized by leading regulars, that is, by leading people who adhere to the to the fundamental precepts associated with the American Medical Association, which had been started shortly before the Civil War. Uh, so they want they want medicine uh, to be confined. They want physicians to be confined only to people who hold degrees from schools they recognize that teach the AMA line. And so they establish a medical society with that goal in mind in, in the state. But that's only one of, of the societies. I mean, there were uh, eclectic societies, there were homeopathic societies and so forth uh, in, in West Virginia and other states as well. So it's a competition among these societies to influence the state legislature to license them and not the others. 
That that becomes the contest. People who think about licensing forget that there are two key issues. One is, should we license medicine at all? Is that a good idea? Is it a legitimate profession? And if we do, the key question, the question of which which provokes all of the tensions of the period, the key question is, what will be the basis? What will be the grounds upon which to license? What, why this one rather than that one? Well, as it seems like one of the, or some of the requirements you're trying to figure out, if, if we're going to assume as took place, the regulars won the battle, then they needed to define, well, who is properly qualified as a regular doctor. So you have to, you would have to go to a credentialed medical school that teaches regular medicine, um, or you would have to have been out in the field and be grandfathered for a period of time or take an exam. And the first interesting question or observation is that West Virginia did not even have a medical school, correct? Right. <laughs> That's right. They didn't have one of any sort, regular or irregular. Um, so they, they were in the position of trying to judge how uh, the word they use is reputable, a reputable medical school. And reputable to them meant AMA standard uh, medical school had been attended outside. Your allusion to the grandfather is interesting too, because in order to get this licensing law through the state legislature, they had to guarantee that everybody out there already practicing would get a license as long as you'd been practicing for 10 years on whatever basis. You could you could be a water carrier, you could be a hydropath, you could be an electric, whatever. If you'd been practicing for, for 10 years, you could have a license. What that does is buy off Mm -hmm. a lot of the opposition in the legislature. Huh. They're, they're not going to be uh, stripped themselves of their livelihood. Uh, it, it'll just be people in the future. So let's go over the timeline. This starts taking place, the organization at the, at the state level, state medical society, working its way up to getting approval by the state legislature to create some type of board of medicine. Um, Walk us through about when this began and the battles they had and when they finally were able to spike the football in the end zone. <laughs> they they uh, begin in the late 1860s, uh, shortly after the war is over. Uh, the, their leader is a man named James Reeves, uh, and Reeves was, a, was an extreme regular. Uh, he was so extreme that he, he would not have any relationships. He would refuse to speak even with physicians who were not regulars. Uh, to, it, it, even down to the point where his, uh, a, a relative of his was married to an irregular and he refused to have to share a meal with that person because he would have to talk to the person. I mean, it, he was that much of an extremist. There were certainly uh, modern day analogies to that, but we could probably spend <laughs> two hours chatting about that. <laughs> I dare say. <laughs> In any event, yeah, he, he then organizes uh, fellow regulars around the state saying, look, uh, what we've got to do is persuade the legislature to uh, make us, give us the exclusive license for med practicing medicine in this state and get rid of all these others. Uh, and the, he organizes that. Uh, they try to influence the legislature throughout the 70s without much luck. Uh, and then at the end of the 70s, they get the idea of let's run ourselves as candidates. 
So they, they, a number of members of the society stand for the uh, West Virginia State Legislature uh, in uh, the 1879-1880 period. Uh, they get themselves elected and they direct uh, passage of a bill uh, now acting as legislators uh, in addition to being physicians. Uh, they enact a bill uh, that will give them exclusive rights to the state. And what's important is not only will it license them, it will make practice of medicine without a license a crime. And that, that, that's something new. Uh, that, that these licenses are no good unless there's a, a penalty for not holding. No, but one question I have as we're kind of going through this time period, so you have the doctors become legislators, they still need to get buy-in um, from the governor as well as public opinion in some capacity. So they didn't dress this up as a monopoly. Um, they dressed it up in the guise of a board of public health in the name of public safety. Did they not? Correct. That That's what they used to get to get what they actually wanted, which was licensing. Uh, they said that licensing, that what the state needs is a state board of health, uh, and they uh, raised the specter of uh, looming uh, smallpox epidemics that appeared to be coming down the Ohio River uh, from Pit, from Pittsburgh toward West Virginia, uh, and they and as a sort of tack-on clause to the board of health law. They get, they authorize the Board of Health to license physicians, and they and the, they are authorized to license physicians as they see fit, but the the, the uh, makeup of the board is such that only regulars can be appointed. It's, it's, it really is a, it is a takeover tale. Uh, at no point do they offer any evidence that the that their therapeutics are better than their rivals. And partly because they couldn't offer such evidence. So homeopathic hospitals had better records than regular medical hospitals, AMA type hospitals. And and they you know they constantly say we're we're protecting the public against dangerous uh, physicians who don't know what they're doing, but they never offer any specific evidence of that actually out there in the field. It, it's really a remarkable sort of thing. They persuade the legislature to give them a monopoly over. The, the medical business in West Virginia on nothing more than a sort of promissory note that in the long run, commitment to science is going to pay off, but it hasn't paid off yet. Uh, and one of the great mysteries, uh, one of the things I was, I spent some time in the book thinking about is how they're able to do that. And uh, as one of the things they're able to do was to get the most powerful corporations in the state on their side. And many people at the time accredited passage of the law to uh, the lobbyists for the railroad and coal companies who for some reason or other were allied to James Reeves and his fellow AMA type doctors, many of whom worked as railroad doctors incidentally. You know, they were in the pay of these corporations. And it does give them some funding early on to get the job done because Although we take travel for granted today, for them to get from point A to point B and then have a place to to do their meetings, um, it wasn't particularly trivial. So having the backing of the railroad corporations was quite helpful and probably gave them a strategic or tactical advantage. Oh, absolutely. Um, 
maybe this is pushing it a bit too far, but I think for the for the general understanding of the period, it's worth remembering that this is an era of consolidations of all sort, especially corporate consolidations. Uh, this period of the 1870s, 1880s, when the big modern mega corporations come into being, uh, U.S. Steel, uh, that that sort of thing, uh, the railroads being the prime example. In essence, what what Reeves and the West Virginia Medical Society he headed, in essence, what they're doing is trying to do the same kind of consolidation, and they're doing it from the top. This is in no sense a public issue. The public did not go into the legislature and say, hey, we've got to regulate medicine. Uh, far from it. Uh, they they almost do, do this despite public misgivings. Wait a minute, is this a good idea? And later governors raised that exact question and, and dragged their feet on enforcing the law because there's no public demand that all doctors be AMA-type doctors. And there, if anything, there's a public demand that... Uh, we should be free to choose all these other different kinds that we want to, since none of them can say they're can demonstrate that they are better than the others. They did get an early victory by creating this board of health and talking about a quarantine from this, I guess, epidemic of smallpox, which um, was in Pennsylvania. And by drawing attention to it and creating some type of functional quarantine, they were able to keep smallpox from entering West Virginia, or if it did enter, it certainly didn't have the the same um, uh, prevalence as, as it did elsewhere in the country. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, and I wouldn't for a second uh, deny um, the legitimate hope of at least Reeves, uh, and at least, and many of his associates, if not all, but but certainly Reeves, he really cared about public health. Uh, but that was not inconsistent with also wanting to monopolize the medical business because he justified that monopoly as ultimately improving public health. And in terms of buying everyone off, um, there were plenty of doctors that were out there. And if you said that all the people who had been practicing for 8, 10, 20 years were not going to participate in this new future. They never would have gotten off the ground. So how how did they ultimately qualify? How did they determine who would be allowed to practice once they launched this organization? What were the criteria? I mean, there were multiple ways to get in the game here. And how did they define that? Well, earlier you put your finger on the three uh, the three ways in which you could qualify. One was to have a degree from what they called a reputable medical school, by which they meant uh, a, a, a school that taught AMA medicine rather than an eclectic medical school or a homeopathic medical school uh, or a botanical medical school. They wanted an AMA-type regular medical school degree. Uh, or you could be grandfathered in, and you're right to, to suggest that that's just a way of... of uh, appeasing the potential uh, opponents, uh, or you could take an exam. They, and the exam sounds uh, perfectly fair to us in, in modern terms, but the exam was administered personally by members of the board, that is by Reeves and his friends, and passing grades would be answers 
that were AMA type answers to what you do when a patient comes in with such and such a situation. If you gave answers that were consistent with eclectic medicine or homeopathic medicine, you wouldn't pass the test. And I'm guessing the exams were very difficult. They were designed to fail as many people as possible. Um, and so getting in by the exam would be one of the more difficult ways to, um, to be properly credentialed and licensed. It, it was, um, uh, that varies a bit. They, in, in the early going, they let some of their friends in with ludicrously easy exams. Uh, but, but they quickly realized that was not a good idea and began to use the exam as a way to make sure that interlopers uh, couldn't get in. Incidentally, a lot of a lot of the alternative physicians, that is eclectics, botanics, homeopaths, and so forth, left West Virginia shortly after this law actually went into effect, and uh, became prominent physicians in Ohio and Kentucky and bordering states. So it had the desired effect of consolidating um, physicians under the regular mantle in one state, at the same time forcing out those who would not be able to make a living. These are people that could not be grandfathered in or take the exam or pass the examination, correct? Perfectly put. That, that, that's exactly, uh, you're just right on that summary. All right, so, the, so they're moving along. They've been given the keys to the kingdom. They now have a monopoly. It seems like there shouldn't be any problems, but there was a problem. So what happened? And take us from launch up to this being litigated in front of the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, <clears throat> there's a, a family of physicians, several generations of physicians, known as the Dents, the, the Dent family. Uh, some listeners may know that uh, uh, Julia Dent was uh, U.S. Grant's wife. She's a distant relative of that family. Uh, they were... Uh, based in, in several cities of West Virginia. And they had practiced medicine on a basically eclectic basis uh, for a very long time. That is, they were willing to treat people on whatever seemed to work. Uh, and one of their members, the, a younger uh, man named Frank Dent, uh, had not uh, practiced for 10 years. He only had practiced for seven, so he wasn't automatically grandfathered. And he did not have a degree from an AMA-type institution. Um, so he initially considered just leaving the state once this went into effect. He went out, I believe, to Missouri, um, where he tried to set up shop as a doctor. Uh, but it was already super crowded in all the Missouri frontier towns. Uh, so he came back. On the way back, he stopped and got a, a degree from what is almost certainly a diploma mill in Cincinnati. Uh, and uh, then came back to the state of West Virginia and resumed practice. And when challenged, uh, he said, I've got this degree from Cincinnati, uh, and, and that was not accepted by the board. Uh, so he then staged what we would now call a test case. Uh, he continued to treat uh, patients uh, in his hometown, and the, the 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 local authorities arrested him for practicing medicine without a license. That's the way the, the case begins. Uh, he talks his well, talk. He he persuades his cousin Marmaduke Dent uh, to represent him in court. Uh, Marmaduke uh, 
again, some of your listeners may know this, uh, Marmaduke was the first graduate of the University of West Virginia and the first recipient of an MA from the University of West Virginia. Uh, was a very sharp uh, lawyer. He eventually becomes uh, a member of the West Virginia Supreme Court, uh, probably the most influential jurist in the history of the state. Uh, at this point, he's a raw, young lawyer on the make. He takes his cousin's case, uh, and they challenge the legitimacy of the new licensing law on the grounds that it violates the 14th Amendment, that the 14th Amendment gives equal rights to everybody who can't take property away from anybody uh, unless there's due cause, due, uh, due cause and, and reason. And they are arguing there isn't any in this case. I mean, the, the, the AMA types are no better at healing than we are, and you're stripping us of our livelihood. Uh, and that's the way the case begins. So this works its way through the court systems. You have a lower court, and the lower court rules for whom? Does it rule in, for the the licensing board, meaning the state, or does it rule for the uh, the doctor, Doctor Dent? The the low the first court, the the one in his own county, rules against him, says he is practicing medicine without a license, and by the letter of the law, he's guilty. They fine him a token 50 bucks or something like that. But that allows him to appeal. He eventually appeals to the West Virginia Supreme Court. And the West Virginia Supreme Court makes an odd ruling saying, in essence, we don't see much reason for the state legislature doing this. And we think it's actually bad legislation. But under the Constitution, if the state legislature thinks that this really does advance public health, then they have the right to pass it. Uh, so it's a kind of begrudging acceptance of, uh, of the new board. Uh, he then appeals to the United States Supreme Court, Marmaduke does, his lawyer. Uh, and in those days, the Supreme Court docket was very crowded. So it took over three years for the case to trickle up to a point of actually being heard in Washington. It's heard in late uh, 1888. Uh, the Marmaduke argues that this is a violation of the 14th Amendment. It's, it's interesting, incidentally, as the first occupational challenge to the 14th Amendment. Uh, those of some of your lawyer listeners uh, might be interested in that aspect of it, but uh, because one of the one of the clauses of the 14th Amendment had been designed specifically to prevent Southern states from barring, in this case, the freed slaves. Uh, from certain occupations. Anyway, the, the, he argues that this is a violation of the 14th Amendment. There's no grounds for this monopolistic license uh, and rests his case. The, the state defends the right of states under the American Constitution to determine public health issues on their own. So for our uh, listeners, and, that would be the 10th Amendment. That is, those rights not allocated to the federal government are reserved by the states. The states having police power. Police power includes health, welfare, and safety. Excellent. Yes, that, that's exactly right. And incidentally, echoes of that remain today. I mean, li doctors are still licensed state by state in the United mm -hmm. States. Uh, hospitals are still regulated state by state. Uh, the, these things have reverberations into the present time. Anyway, the the uh, the state argues that it has the right, and actually goes so far as to say, we we kind of think AMA is the way to go. 
uh, we're accepting this promissory note. We're, we're, we're making a leap of faith here that this, in the long run, probably will be better for our people than other forms of medicine. Now, we know now they eventually won that wager, but it took a long time for the wager to come home and was not objectively justified at the time. Uh, the United States Supreme Court, to everybody's surprise, uh, allows the board to stand and rules against Dent in the case of Dent versus West Virginia, which was uh, the, the the verdict was uh, announced in January of 1889, uh, saying that states did have the constitutional right to create what amounted to mon medical monopolies uh, through this licensing uh, basis. It was very poorly received by the legal community of the day. And it took about 20 years for the for the, the larger law community to work out rationalizations for what the court had done. Uh, they, everyone was surprised. Everyone thought that it was a violation of the 14th Amendment and that property was being uh, uh, threatened by this decision. Uh, particularly corporate lawyers were terrified that this was going to be the entering wedge for other kinds of property seizures. Uh, it proved not to be, of course, but uh, the point here is that, again, something we take for granted, of course doctors have to be regulated, of course they have to be licensed, but was not taken for granted and was opposed by a majority of legal scholars even after the court ruled that it was okay. And this was just one state that won the right to regulate its own physicians. It did not spread exactly. like wildfire to every state immediately thereafter. It took it took decades for that to happen. Oh, absolutely. Again, most people you know, walking the streets of the United States today would find it uh, really surprising to know that effective leg uh, licensing, that licensing actually worked and had some teeth, was not universal in this country until uh, into the early 20th century. And even so, then, a lot of grandfathered physicians were still practicing out there. The thing that's also fascinating is that initially, they were just fighting over whether the state had the right to initially license someone. They weren't really looking at complaints from patients the way they do today or regulating the continued practice of medicine. It was just can you get through the door, yes or no? Um, and I don't know how long it took before these became full-fledged regulatory bodies, which looked at the day-to-day -day practice of medicine, regulating the day-to-day -day practice of medicine, as, a as opposed to a binary yes, no. You either can practice or you cannot. And I don't know whether they initially they had the ability or teeth to remove someone's license to take it away from them most most in most states they did not have that that's that's those developments come much later it was a once over the bar situation once you were licensed you were licensed forever yeah so i mean this is a fascinating history of the evolution um as we march forward to to today there are so many uh, other battles that are being fought so one of the more recent battles is the is what we call maintenance of certification. So let me describe that. Almost everybody who's listening will know what it is, but for those perhaps in the legal profession that don't practice medicine, um, physicians uh, can be board certified in their specialty. And initially it followed the same paradigm. Once you're board certified, for the most part, you remain board certified. That was the 
the paradigm. But um, there became clamoring uh, by some, and I'm not ex sure exactly uh, who who was clamoring for this, that it didn't reflect whether a doctor um, continued um, to stay up to date in their specialty. And so maintenance of certification are these certificates that are time limited, they last for 10 years, then you have to recertify, you need to recredential. And there are many ways to do it, and it's, it's certainly evolved over time, uh, but it's created a tremendous amount of controversy with many physicians stating it's just busy work, it doesn't change you know, their ability to practice, that they wouldn't be doing anything differently, and it's turned into a cottage industry of uh, prep tests and, um, and, and schools, um, online schools that you have to pay large amounts of money for and extract yourself from your practice for, uh, uh, for weeks on end just to uh, pass an exam that nobody, nobody seemed to want. I mean, these are the modern day fights and I'm sure I'm just referencing one of many. In addition, there are turf wars where specialties will try to make the case that in terms of scope of practice, they are the best equipped to treat a particular organ. I know that um, several decades ago, I, I trained in one of the first joint uh, neurosurgery orthopedic spine fellowships. Uh, at the time, neurosurgeons said, and I'm, I'm a neurosurgeon by training, Neurosurgeons said we're the only ones capable of treating spine disease properly. Orthopedic surgeons says, well, wait a minute, you know, the spine's a type of bone. We're the only ones that know how to deal with this. And so there was a turf war. And so when I took the uh, one of the earlier fellowships, I thought this will be great. I'll learn from both specialties. Uh, nope. Initially, the neurosurgeons thought I was a um, I was a trader, and the um, orthopedic surgeons thought I was an interloper. So it, it sometimes it takes generations for the animus to abate and for people to think there never was a past, that it's always been this way. And I don't know that um, licensing is, is any different. It just, um, I, I'm certain that most of the people listening to this podcast today will just assume that medicine has generally been licensed uh, into the for into the past as far back as one can see but i think what you've brought is a, a fascinating uh, story uh, to light but then let's let's round it up with the uh, the murder because i think that wraps everything up with a bow this is it's it's what got my attention to reading the book i mean it's not often that you see one doctor murder another, but it was related to the board licensing issue. It It is the cherry on top of the Sunday here. Right. The, the younger man who did not have a proper degree uh, became persona non grata to the older one who was, like Reeves, very committed to the new AMA standards. Uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, they... Uh, fought openly in public, uh, occasionally came to fisticuffs, always verbal abuse to each other was common. Uh, and they happened to bump into each other one day in uh, the, the busiest intersection in Wheeling, West Virginia, the biggest city in the state. Uh, and uh, the older man started in on the younger, as he usually did. 
the younger man pulled out uh, a gun and shot the older man once through the head, once in the chest. Uh, he staggers into a nearby store with blood coming out of his eye because the bullet passed through his skull and back out through his left eye. Um, and quietly took off his gloves and uh, announced that he had been shot. He lay down and was pronounced dead. Uh, the doctor who did the shooting uh, put the gun away, walked around the corner to the police station and said, I've just shot Dr. Baird. Of course, the police didn't know what to do. The, this, the shooter was the uh, health officer for the city of West Virginia, uh, for the city of Wheeling. He'd been elected uh, in a popular election to be the, the chief uh, public health officer. Uh, there are three trials, uh, first two uh, result in uh, hung juries or no trial. They had a terrible time getting juries, incidentally. They went through hundreds and hundreds of people. All I mean, why do you think he wasn't convicted so quickly? It's not, I mean, he, for the most part, confessed to the crime, did he not? Yeah, I think the, the issue in the eyes of the jurors, evidently, was uh, the degree of provocation. Hmm. I mean, was it? And was he, in some sense, uh, acting in self-defense because the older man had often threatened him with physical harm? I'm not sure he ever threatened him with death, but threatened him with physical harm and, and tried his best to, to, to dismirch, uh, to besmirch the uh, reputation of the younger man, do everything he could to under, undercut that, that person. Uh, and so the question was, is this legitimate self-defense? Did he really feel like he was in danger? Yes or no? And was the provocation over such a long period of time and at such virulent uh, levels of rhetoric, uh, does that mitigate the action to the extent that it's not murder, maybe it's manslaughter, maybe it's uh, something in between? Uh, and they, they couldn't resolve that until uh, the third trial, they resolve that it's a lesser manslaughter uh, and they basically say that the amount of time you've spent in jail is enough. I forget whether they might have given him a couple more months. Um, so he is basically free uh, and leaves the state, crosses the Ohio River, and becomes a very successful physician over in, in Ohio. <laughs> Those were the good old days, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Much more difficult to go from uh, one state to another, just given the National Practitioner Data Bank. So these are the days well before the National Practitioner Data Bank, where if you spend time in prison for murder, it would be challenging to start fresh in another state. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Listen, we've gone through, this has been a whirlwind history tour. I can't thank you enough for joining us today. I'm absolutely positive that everyone listening learned at least 10 facts that they did not know previously. So I will not have to give anyone a free year of medical justice. But if I'm proven wrong, please step up and, and uh, come collect your prize. Um, I can't thank you enough again for joining us. Mike, do you have any questions before we migrate away? Professor Moore, when did it work? Yeah. When did it work? I'm... From a public health standpoint, the regulations, it seemed like medicine needed to catch up with, um, to have some benefit, right, to, to people. Yeah. And it's not entirely clear to me that it, it was um, the right choice at the time that it was made, but certainly later it was the right choice. Yeah, and pe I, as I understand the question, um, it's, you, the implication of the question is excellent. 
That is, there was no reason for this call when it was made, uh, but the bet they, the, the wager they make on the future of scientific medicine does pay off. But again, it pays off much later than most Americans would think. Um, bacteriology, for example, was not widely accepted by American physicians, even AMA-type physicians, until well into the 20th century. If you ask the, uh, and, and historians have done this, if you ask when the average patient with the average ailment goes into the office of the average physician and actually gets some benefit from that encounter, um, the answers will vary according to what, what is wrong with the patient in the first place. But for most ailments, the answer to that is not until at minimum the early sulfa drugs of the 30s and many people will say you don't benefit from going to a doctor until penicillin is widely available to the civilian population after World War II. So this bet takes a long time to pay off. To that point, doctors can't do a whole lot more than the Romans could do. They could set bones, they could uh, offer palliative care and so forth, but they can't really cure diseases uh, until uh, you're close to the middle of the 20th century. Thanks for joining us today for the Medical Liability Minute. I'm positive everyone learned quite a bit about the history of medical licensing boards. I know I did. And by the way, it's a spectacularly good book that I recommend, which is the License to Practice. The Supreme Court defines the American medical, uh, medical, American medical profession. Again, License to Practice. The Supreme Court defines the American medical profession. We were joined today by Professor James Moore. Bye-bye. Before we end, let's provide the link for our sponsor once again. If you need help reviewing your employment contract before you sign on the dotted line, reach out to a company with great online reviews and a reputation for doing that and more. Find Resolve at www.drpodcastnetwork.com slash resolve. Again, drpodcastnetwork.com slash resolve to get the review process started today. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation, best practices, 
and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.